All right, welcome to the Neural Information Retrieval Podcast. This is sixth episode. Uh, it's Sergi Castella speaking, as usual, with um, our partner in crime. Andrew Yates from the <laughs> yeah. University of Amsterdam. <laughs> Professor at the University of Amsterdam. Um, okay, so today we have a, a very special paper to discuss because we're, we're getting a little bit out of our usual comfort zone, I would say. Um, we're going to discuss the OPT paper, which is this uh, paper from Facebook or well, should I say Meta? I think their GitHub repo is still not uh, uh, rebranded in terms of like the Facebook right. research. It is still <laughs> Facebook research, yeah. So I so. think that we're still in the, <laughs> the transition period of that. Anyway, um, so we're going to discuss this paper. Um, but before we get into that, um, quick uh, quick mention. Uh, I've recently made this form so that uh, you guys can uh, sort of send us uh, who you are and like uh, some opinions you have about the, um, the podcast and what topics you'd like us to discuss. So like, please, uh, you will find a link in the description and you can just quickly do that. It's just like a minute or two. Uh, so we really appreciate your feedback. Um, that said, I know you, Andrew, have been very recently to the ACL conference, which was happening last week from where, when we were recording this. Uh, it happened in Dublin, right? Yeah, no, um, it was a, it was an interesting conference. So, uh, do, do you uh, would you like to share like a quick some quick thoughts on on how it went? I mean, it was like your first. You said your your first big conference in person after. Um, yeah, the, the first in person since I think February twenty twenty. So mm -hmm. a little while, but it's nice to have them again. Yeah. So one theme I noticed um, looks goes back to some of the other things we we're discussing, like this pre-training for dense retrieval is becoming very popular. So the most of the papers that were interesting, I they have been on archive for some time. They were nice papers. Um, I'd, mm -hmm. I'd read them already. But it, it's just a really big theme at the conference, like different pre-training approaches to get the dense retrieval methods to work well. Kind of like Spider, which I think we did in maybe our third episode, yeah, I exactly. want to say. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so this is, it seems to be picking up speed. It, it still seems to be the case that things are improving, but there's not, you know, like a single pre-training strategy everyone should jump on and, and let's yeah. do it this way. Uh, yeah, it's, I mean, that, that's what makes it exciting. Yeah, yeah, part, it's, right? it's still very kind of exciting and new. An underexplored yeah. um, area. No, it sounds really nice. I, I can totally feel how you probably like get this experience in person a little bit better. Like the, you get a kind of a sense of how, ex like what is people excited about more than um, in online uh, versions. So that's... Very nice. All right, that said, shall we uh, dive into it as usual? Yeah, let's um, jump in. So let's start a bit with, I wanted to start talking a little bit about kind of a mini history uh, kind of reflection on the world of neural information retrieval. I remember when um, I was doing my first course in information retrieval at the UVA at the beginning of 2019, our teacher, Evangelos, actually, uh, I'm guessing you... Um, no, him. Uh, he said that kind of neural information retrieval was still very in its infancy and it was still like very kind of early stages and how information retrieval was kind of like late to the neural revolution, quote unquote. Um, and uh, I feel like that when that changed, it was a little bit with the whole BERT and Revranker stuff. And when this whole uh, revolution in NLP based on like uh, self-supervised training and BERT and transformers kind of like uh, made it the jump to the neural information retrieval. And I think it's super interesting because I feel like these two things have um, converged a little like neural, neural information, sorry, IR and NLP has kind of like have kind of converged a little bit in some. Yeah, methods. the methods or at least the, the neural backbones to the methods look really similar these days, right? So pre-trained pre language models on both sides um, may be used a bit differently, um, but you know, the same models are often used. But one interesting thing is that 
you know, in NLP, there will often be a new model that does really well on glue. This is a common benchmark. And so this mm-hmm. is the new state of the art. This doesn't seem to be that well correlated with what is the best in IR. So, so I'm, for example, using electric, Electra, like a, not old, but you know, it's after Bert, a, a couple years old at this point, uh-huh. more than Roberta or something new. Cause in IR, this seems to be the, the right default. In NLP, even though we're still using transformers, the exact transformer doesn't really seem to be the same. So like Roberta was really popular, but I haven't Super, gotten yeah. great results with Roberta for IR. It's uh-huh. not bad, but it's just not a clear improvement. So the, the little That's differences like this. But and if I remember correctly, Electra is the one that proposed to train, um, to do like the pre-training as a discriminator instead of a classification task, right? Like they have like a generator and and like a, f- a model, small model that like f- try to fool the... Yeah, a- exactly. So they, rather than doing the masked language modeling, they use the generator to randomly replace some terms and then they predict whether this was the original term or not. Mm-hmm. So I, I guess one advantage is you have a loss on every token now rather than only the, the mask tokens or, or some subset of tokens. Mm-hmm. No, um, that's, that's but, uh, super fascinating. I remember checking yeah. out that paper at iClear uh, and it was, um, I really... I really loved it. Yeah. Um, yeah, but these things have improved IR a lot. So, like the transformer models are everywhere. These contextualized embeddings seem really yeah. good at content-based similarity. And like we said, I think in the in a couple of episodes ago, um, w- whenever it's not even mentioned, like you normally assume that um, training on these self-supervised tasks uh, of for IR, for instance, um, starts from a checkpoint of some type of NLP pre-trained isn't like you you never start training IR without some kind of um, NLP base uh, sorry like some kind of language modeling base or like some kind of yeah um, no that's true so it's always starting from usually whatever pre-training task was associated with the model you know so like bird it's mass language modeling next sentence prediction and then even like the the IR specific pre-training like I was mentioning ACL like we saw with spider a bit this is also starting from that checkpoint so it doesn't seem I mean, maybe there's no reason to, but people don't go, you know, initialize the model from scratch, train it for the IR pre-training. It's always building on top of, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the NLP style setup was, which no. seems to work. Um, okay, yeah. So all of these sort of context for <laughs> to me acts as a justification of why we want to look into NLP paper because this is a more NLP paper. It's not really um, IR uh, information retrieval, which is more of a, um, our focus. But I still think it's super interesting to kind of step out a little bit of our comfort zone and discuss this because there's so many kind of uh, little bits of wisdom that are surprising and and fun to to discuss. So that said, um, can you give us like as usual? a minute of an introduction of what this paper and logbook does or like what like how do you kind of frame this whole yeah um well so opt stands for open pre-trained transformer and i guess what they want to do is replicate the gpt3 which is a really common large not common but really well-known very large transformer model um from open ai so i guess the the point of this paper is to understand how well they can replicate it and kind of detail the process so how hard was it to do you know is it very clean and things just start as you planned at the beginning and, and go on and spoiler, they, they don't like there's a lot of <laughs> ad hoc changes you have to make as, as things go, uh-huh. you know, just reducing the learning rate at times and, and so on manually. Um, yeah. And, and I guess another important part of the paper is they want to release the weights, right? So GPT three, it's, you can use it with a, an API. Um, I guess you pay for the API, mm-hmm. but they won't give you, you know, the, the model itself. Um, and I guess part of the goal here is to, to make the model available um, for researchers who can use it, I guess it's a, it's a very large model. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think I think that's super um, 
say valuable, right, for the research community to sort of learn more about um, about what it takes to train these large uh, language models. Um, that said, uh, can we? I think that we're going to focus most of the discussion or, uh, on like talking about the logbook and some findings that we have found there. Mm-hmm. But uh, we should just give like a little bit of a context of what the model is, like the loss function they're using, a, a bit like the the kind of model sizes they they work with. Um, like Andrew has said, is uh, pretty much uh, implementing GPT three. So if you are very familiar with that, you kind of mostly know this, um, but otherwise, um, what is the architect? Well, what is the architecture they use? Uh, what is it based on? And like, it's like encoders, decoder. Yeah, yeah. So what we say for OPT, as you said, goes for GPT three. So this is a stack of transformer decoders. Um, a, a decoder is sequence to sequence, meaning the length of the output is not does not have to be equal to the length of an input. So we've often looked at encoders, which take every input element and you could say rewrites in some way. So it's always end-to-end. Decoders can generate any sequence. They do this by taking the some input text as input and then also attending to the previous text they've output. So you can imagine, you know, like um, keyboard autocomplete on a phone, just you know, one term at a time, predicting what the next most likely term is based on what you have so far. Mm-hmm. Um, this would probably do that much better than what is on the phone, mm-hmm. but it, it, it wouldn't run there either. Um, yeah, so it's a stack of these transformer decoders. Um, and so they, they train it to do this autoregressive language modeling. Basically, they have some text and they just try to predict the text. So they start with the first token, try to predict the next token. Um, and then they use something called teacher forcing, I believe. So rather than the, the model just receiving as input what it has already generated, it receives as input what it should have generated. Right. Yeah. So, so of course, it's not going to guess correctly um, most of the time. Um, so, you know, it's kind of given this string, try to complete the the next token. Given the the new string, try to complete the next token, and mm-hmm. and so on. Just like the the keyboard setting. Yeah. The um, autoregressive. Uh, yeah. Language I, I, modeling task. Exactly. Yeah. Autoregressive. I guess meaning you look at what has been generated before. Yeah. Um, right. Like it's it's only like uh, can only attend to previous tokens, but not. Um, yeah. It, it can't see the the future. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and then I guess maybe the other missing ingredient is the tokenizer. Mm-hmm. Is this? Yeah. So um, what do you do here? It's called a, a byte pair encoding tokenizer. Um, it's not so different than what BERT does. Basically, they create some vocabulary. So here, the vocabulary consists of single bytes, and then they just keep adding to this vocabulary um, up to some up to some budget. Essentially, trying to add something at every step that can cover as many possible terms in some vocabulary. Um, so, so byte sounds a bit different, but ASCII characters like English language, like A through Z, these are all one byte. So this is equivalent to adding in A through Z as, as like starting tokens. And then also some other bytes. So for example, if you have a more complex character in, in Unicode, it can be represented using a few bytes. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a bit different, I guess, if you move to the multilingual setting, but they focus on English. So I, I don't think there's a huge difference from like the word piece tokenization okay. for the, the English purposes. So this all seems pretty standard. We could uh, quickly say the um, the data they they're using, right? Yeah. Um, to like a pre-training corpus. My understanding is it's not totally clear what training data GPT-3 used. Mm-hmm. This is, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not completely um, um, yeah, not so open source. I so. guess part of the goal of this is to see if things work with you know whatever data they, they use. Um, so they, they take the BERT-style data, they call it Roberta. So this is like books corpus. Um, this was used with BERT also. And then uh, Creative Commons News, um, or sorry, Common Crawl News, I don't think this was used with BERT, but it, it was with Roberta, I suppose. Um, 
They also have the pile, which is a, a collection of a lot of different texts. Mm-hmm. So they just take some subsets of this, um, like Wikipedia, Project Gutenberg is, um, you know, books that are now in public domain, um, more common crawl data. Yeah, um, and I guess the only only other uh, bit interesting bit is the um, that they only do uh, filtering of duplicated documents with uh, with this uh, min hash lsh algorithm. So basically, like whatever has uh, more than 0.95 checkout similarity in that metric, right? They, they filter out. They filter um, out. Yeah, which doesn't seem to be a. Um, very aggressive form of pre-processing, right? No, um, I, I kind of wondered how much of it came from Project Gutenberg. I believe this has a lot of duplicates because it can have like, similar editions of a book or something like this. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what's going on, but I've seen this before also. Okay. So when I saw that, I kind of wondered how much of it was specific to Gutenberg. There's probably other duplicates, but it, it, it might be that you know a large part of this is filtering those out. Certainly, yeah, yeah. No, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Um, and then they also have this Reddit data. Um, the way they use it is kind of interesting, right? Because they need documents. It's it's not the model's not trained to look at a conversation, but Reddit is you know conversation threads. It has a tree structure, so they take kind of the the longest path through the tree, turn that into a document, and mm-hmm. then and keep only that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know exactly what effect it has, but it's an interesting. Yeah, you, you know, said before that it, you would expect it to just end up being like conversation between two people. Yeah, yeah. Just having like, like, <laughs> I mean, it's whoever had time to talk at each yeah. other the longest um, that, that could go poorly or well. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, okay, that's it. I think we have enough information to jump into the to discussion of, of these logbooks. So for context, um, if you go to Facebook research repository, you will find uh, all of this material. Uh, what they did is besides publishing uh, links to download their 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 pre-term weights and their code, they also have this logbook where they documented basically the engineers training these and researchers training these kept a log of everything they had to do and all of their thoughts and everything. And you can just go through that. Um, which is a very interesting uh, experiment uh, thing to to look into. Um, so we're just going to highlight some things that um, uh, from from that logbook. Um, that said, I think we should start talking a little bit about the preliminary experiments and training run that they that they do and they document in this um, logbook. Um, so the first thing in oh, sorry, um, yeah. So they basically do a lot of. Uh, Experiments with a smaller um, model of like 1.3 billion. Uh, I think it's it's the one that they do a lot of the um, sort of preliminary experiments to choose uh, a lot of hyperparameters and things like that. Uh, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention this: the sizes of the models that they train. Right. They range from 125 million to 175 billion, which is the size of GPT uh, three. Right. 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 So. Um, yeah, that's the biggest um, size, 175 billion parameters. Um, yeah, so going back to these uh, preliminary experiments, so they do a lot of these uh, experiments on the 1.3 billion parameter model. And the first thing that surprised me the most was this thing about spikiness. Um, it seems to be like a very salient term that they use, like they just have, they just have this tensor board um, log losses going down. And you see a lot of them are like, are very spiky, like they have a lot of jumps, and some of them have less of that. And it, that seems to be like one of one of the main things they look at to sort of uh, find settings that are stable to train. Um, I like this, this is something that doesn't really happen in smaller models. Is that right? I, I, I think that much. Not 
not that often. Um, I've observed it occasionally and wondered why and thought maybe this is, you know, the, the, some weird part of the training data where it, it's like nonsense maybe and the model can't handle it well, right? So if you were to just, so they're using English language training data. If you were to inject some other language in the middle, I think it would suddenly get really spiky around that point because it's unexpected. Mm-hmm. But I, yeah, commonly with small models, um, I, I don't think it comes up as much or at least Alternative is maybe we understand how to train small models well and things yeah. like the default or learning I, I rate, the schedule. Like what people do with smaller models is like they to to choose hyperparameters and stuff. They just kind of run it up to a point with different parameters and like just look at the, how well it performs on a validation set. Whereas here it's more like let's train it and just look at the plot and kind of interpret it in a kind of uh, sort of hmm, this looks very spiky. This the loss goes a little bit slower, faster. Um, yeah, that, that's true. This trying to interpret the spikiness of the loss, I guess, is more in this regime <laughs> yeah, when you have yeah, a very exactly. large model. So yeah. I find this very um, interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Um, yeah, so uh, about these, um, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I have here some thoughts uh, that I had, um, which is how much of all of these decisions don't look very uh, formulaic and it's it seems very much a, a craft of like people who have done this a lot and have some sort of sense of like i think this might fix things i think this won't but it's not very um i don't know it, it seems very chaotic and yeah i i, I agree and, i mean i i think it is a lot built on intuition um and i think because there's not like a comprehensive theory of exactly how all of this works it's hard to know what to do other than having some intuition and, and playing around with it, having some idea to change this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, there are a lot of explanations for like, I, I guess, specific phenomena or what single hyperparameters might do, but I don't think there's a way to understand how they all relate to each other. So, you know, maybe, you know, there's some theoretical reason why this um, uh, nonlinearity is better than that nonlinearity, mm-hmm. but how that interacts with everything else. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to try it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But what 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 makes what this makes me think of is like is it makes you realize that even if you have a very good recipe for or a pretty good recipe for these, if you try these at home, you're probably gonna fail. I feel like, and you need like a lot of this kind of black magic expertise to to make it work in a sense. Or, yeah. Or, uh, I, I mean, even when we moved from like pre-transformer models to transformer in NLP and IR, the learning rate changed. I think basically for everyone, right? It went from the magnitude negative three down to like negative five. And this was just, you know, one of those black magic things that's handed mm. to you, plug, <laughs> plug this in. If you don't, it will not necessarily train very well. Yeah, but it, yeah. Just do it this way now that you have a transformer. It, it's, uh, no, I, that, that's a very good point. I remember when I was um, studying, I feel like it was pre-transformers and there was almost like there were memes about how you just probably like use uh, like one, like, uh, one exponential minus three for uh, yeah. Adam, and you know you'll be fine. Yeah. <laughs> like just whatever. Um, and it's true that that's no longer um, the case with yeah. um, transformers. Um, um, okay, like any other uh, things that uh, sort of stand out to you about uh, the preliminary experiments that they do? Um, I mean, I thought some of the things they considered but didn't try were interesting. Um, I don't know, like we have them here, like changing the, the type of nonlinearity from ReLU to GelU or the other way around, I guess, um, changing data, things like that. Mm-hmm. 
But I guess these were things that were hard to try. So I guess these were things in logbook they considered but didn't want to to actually do because it would require a, a full restart. Mm-hmm. It would um, be super super expensive. Yeah, and, and I mean, who knows if any or which would help and how much? I could. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's yeah. very ad hoc. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, and when it comes to the training run, um, without getting into the, like uh, details of like uh, specific issues, um, because we're, we're going to do that in in, in ten minutes. Um, one of the things that really found it very interesting and funny was how they really talk about specific nodes. Uh, it's like nodes keep uh, failing, right? And and they really refer to to them as like you know node eighty five came back, uh, you know, we keep node 7 and 47 yeah. removed because they seem to be not doing well. Like, we don't know why, but we just can kind of set that aside. Um, and yeah, the realization that once you're working at that scale, um, it's like, I don't know, it, it, it just kind of shifts the kind of class of problems that you're dealing with. Yeah, I, I don't know if we said how many nodes there are, but there's like 124 total. So this is interesting, no. and I think they each have eight-ish GPUs. So I believe it comes out to like 992, if I'm remembering right, GPUs across 124 nodes. Yeah, no, very um, good point. So actually, let's um, let's jump into uh, into this. So like the the bit of the more data engineering uh, side of things. Um, you repeat like it is running on one twenty four nodes, and each one is under twenty four. Each has eight GPUs, I guess, and so there's a lot of things that can go wrong, right? Any of those GPUs can fail. I don't know if that brings down the whole node or how exactly it's configured. Maybe it does. Mm-hmm. System memory can have errors in one of those nodes, and now the whole node probably goes down. So who knows what the specific failure reasons are? But I think hardware problems become much more likely at that scale, yeah. or in like. GPU driver issues or, or things like that, right? This is not known for being the most stable uh, yeah, driver yeah, in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, um, totally. That, that, that's super interesting. I mean, uh, one of the, I think, running conclusions, or, or at least for me, is um, how much babysitting this whole process uh, requires, right? Yeah, they have someone on call, I guess, constantly for. Yeah, exactly. They say yeah. they have someone constantly on call, and of course, this keeps changing because you know <laughs> people get burned out. But it's really like their responsibility, and whenever something goes wrong, like to act quickly. Um, actually, they they mention in the logbook how uh, in the in the recipe for like how how to deal with things, um, the price per hour of this whole thing uh, going um, staying idle is two two thousand five hundred dollars per hour. Uh, so that's you know pretty <laughs> important cost. Yeah. Um, so so yeah, the the, the babysitting uh, to me it seems very like so um, huge and important. Um, I think that we're let, let's let's not wait. Let's, let's comment on some very also um, funny thing that I found, uh, which is I think I know what I mean, which is the temperature uh, issue. Right. They have this place in the. Um, in the logbook, uh, at the be- I think it's at the beginning where they kind of describe kind of uh, things that people on call should look for and, and run. And basically what they describe is to look if whether nodes are functioning properly or GPUs are functioning properly is to run, um, to check their temperature basically, which I found super funny because I, I kind of really expected them to have some 
sort of monitor like monitoring or I don't know how, how to call it. Yeah, system. no, I, I'm sure they have some logging and, and production, but I, I don't know where this is running exactly. I guess they manually have to run the command to check yeah, the GPU so temperature. Like the fact like that you would look at the at the temperature of the node too. I, I don't know, like maybe, yeah. maybe this is actually something super common and I'm just not familiar with that. Well so so this tool also so shows GPU utilization, but looking at the temperature is way smarter because I don't know exactly how utilization is computed, but it's something like a point estimate. So it just depends when you press enter on the command so uh, it, it can okay. show it's... something low incorrectly from at least my experience with it but temperature means that it's recently been used so yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. these get very hot it's, it's a like, big difference in temperature some pretty robust physics behind it right? yeah, <laughs> like yeah, if, yeah. if that thing is computing stuff it gets hot so like yeah. <laughs> no it, it, it's um, a good idea <laughs> so that that was super um super cool yeah um all right so let's look into this um uh, recipe for when things go bad right so like we said spikiness is a thing that happens a lot so when they're running this thing this is like one big training run that they run through i think it was like three months or something like that yeah roughly order? three months roughly i think i don't know months. exactly yeah um with their final run one of the things you observe is that like the model can have well the last function can have spikes and then kind of like it all goes wrong and you have to kind of one of the main things about babysitting this process is to prevent this from happening or fixing this so in these in the logbook they have this sort of recipe uh, that is like the loss exploded like uh, we don't know why what should you do when that happens step one is don't panic um, <laughs> step two is ping the group chat and then I guess you have ten minutes to see if anyone is is around to discuss it with if not they they think you probably should take some action this um, is where they say it costs like twenty five hundred an hour to idle I guess this means idling all of the nodes um, probably I mean, is what yeah, it means that's yeah. what I understand. Uh, yeah. Because I mean, the thing is that, that the thing, like whenever the, 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 if the loss spikes and you do nothing, like, um, all of the checkpoints that you're saving after that and all of that yeah. computation is pretty much useless. Yeah. Right? You're going to have to go back. Exactly. So, so yeah. you're going to have to like to refer to something previously. So like, if you don't do anything, you're losing that much right. money. Um, Whereas if a single node goes down, I guess this isn't a huge issue. You have a little less compute, but the rest keeps moving. So, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, yeah, so what is the next step? Well, what is the next guideline? Uh, um, they, so some bias for action. Uh, so it's probably better to, to do something sooner than later due to the cost. And then I guess the, the next step or suggestion is requeuing. So just starting from the previous checkpoint. Um, we were discussing a, earlier exactly how this works. I guess it must change the data, right? If they continued from the same checkpoint at the same point in the data, I wouldn't expect anything to go differently. Um, but maybe they're changing the position in the data they they requeue mm. from. Yeah, that, that that would be also also my guess. So like the actual wording that they use here um, is that like they say like requeuing is the generally the safest option unless this logbook says um, otherwise. Uh, and then and then they say uh, restart this job from the last checkpoint and just pray for the best. Literally. Um, so I really would like to know actually how often this works, right? Because it's just like reverting the checkpoint and just kind of doing nothing. Like you said, if it's a problem with the data that there's some like kind of very bad piece of data that makes this whole thing go. Yeah, um, but it it also should be deterministic. If they're starting from the exact same point in the data with the exact same checkpoint, I I, I think it should be deterministic enough that you run into the exact same problem, mm -hmm. right? If If you change the data you start from with that checkpoint, you've at least... Adjusted something about the training and uh, it's yeah. I mean, if everything is deterministic, I'm just thinking like where changes could come from. Like one is the the data, but if the data is the same, maybe the 
do they use like something like Dropout or some other like stochastic? Um, yeah, if they change the techniques. random seed for Dropout, that's a good point. I remember them saying, I think they don't use Dropout in the embeddings, but they use Dropout within the transformer layers. Yeah, so if they're changing this random seed, that. But I would be kind of surprised if that made. Uh... Yeah, well, I mean, they say also frequently this just kicks the can down the road two to six <laughs> more hours, but that can buy you some time to sleep and discuss. So this may be more of a sleep strategy than a fixing yeah, the model yeah, strategy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't it's know. like, it's definitely better than doing nothing, right? I mean, yeah. these requeuing, like it, worst case scenario, the last explodes again. So you're like back where you were, but not, um, you're not guaranteed to be losing your compute. Um, Right, it, it, it may work and you um, have a plan B in mind, I guess, if it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so when that doesn't work, uh, what are the kind of go-to strategies that they, they propose? It seemed like the main go-to is lowering the learning rate. Um, here they say by some factor like 0.9 times or 0.75 times, they call it the, the default mode of action. Um, they say this seems to bias a couple days. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think this seemed to be the most widely used one. They also did some other things like they say um, lowering the, the gradient clipping from 1.0 to 0.3. I think they did this at some point. They might have gone back to 1.0 and then back to 0.3. I don't remember exactly, but they there's some playing around with that in the logbook. Yeah. book. Um, then yeah. some other things that I guess they didn't try or weren't successful. Um, clamping of activations, it, they call it a plan B, so I guess they 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 don't reach that. Yeah, yeah, they they don't reach that, and then they tried to switch out the optimizer, so to go from Atom to SGD. That, that's one of the most interesting uh, points of discussion, right? There. Yeah, it's okay. a few pages in the the logbook, <laughs> but I, I at the end of the day, I guess it got back to where they they started, right? They so, they ran it. So can you can you describe what happened there? Uh, um, so. I don't remember exactly. So I think they were, they did this, they had the spiky loss behavior. They swapped the optimizer out. Um, I think they swapped it out twice, I want to so say. So they were using Atom? Yeah, right? so they were using Atom, the Atom with weight decay, Atom W, I believe. Mm-hmm. And then they tried swapping it out to SGD. Um, I think something about how they swapped it out, they didn't feel like it was going correctly, so they tried to swap out to a different. SGD implementation, one they call real SGD and one fake, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I guess after training this way for a bit, they end up with similar spikiness. So they they kind of get back to the, the same place they started, or at least they feel. I'm not sure exactly how to say whether it's a new problem or a different problem because it's, <laughs> it's just, yeah. the mo- it doesn't look right. Um, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and at the end of the day, I think then they just go back to the, the Atom W. Yeah, um, that's my, that's my understanding the, as well. It's yeah. kind of yeah, it's kind of interesting, right? Like how the, all these things like is try to move things around, and eventually, like you just kind of nudge this kind of loss function a little bit. It's a bit like hitting the TV, you know? Yeah, no, it's <laughs> just, just like hitting the TV. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, but it works. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the digital equivalent of hitting a TV. Now there's no like analog electronics to hit. But <laughs> um, okay, so I think that covers. Um, uh, some of the things that uh, we found interesting. Uh, is there are yeah. there other uh, things you want to highlight? Um, um, from I think not specifically, just the overall amount of like effort and care it takes. It, it's not just train the model and let it go, right? They have a logbook, 116, 112, something like that pages um, with yeah. a lot of detail of the, the babysitting process. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah. even ignoring like the cost of the compute, you need to have people who know what they're doing, like watching it near constantly. It seems. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I mean, and, and it definitely like speaks to like how. 
like even if you have a even even if the GPT three um, paper contains all of the training details. Uh, which is kind of debatable as <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> but even if it did, <laughs> even if it did, um, like replicating that thing is like uh, you know huge engineering effort. Um, even if you have all of the kind of pieces and the recipe for for it. Yeah, I mean the guy hitting um, the TV has changed, right? You yeah. don't know if they're even going to make the same ad hoc decisions. It's you know. exactly yeah. Um, Anyway, so I think we can just uh, jump into um, into the results. Results. So I guess like my overall sense, like there's not that much super interesting about this, so we'll be we'll be uh, quick. My general sense is that they train it pretty successfully, not quite GPT three level, um, which is what kind of they were were going f- uh, for, um, but. I don't know what 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 surprise or like what what would you highlight uh, as interesting bits from the results section? Yeah, that's that's my takeaway too. Like I tend to view the results as establishing that they reproduced GPT three in some way. Like you know the GPT results were look how great this can do it things. Right now it's more about seeing how well it compares. Um, mm-hmm. And and like you said, it does seem very slightly worse depending on exactly what you look at. Um, but it, it's hard to say much about this, right? The data has changed. I don't know if GPT-3 does any sort of output filtering. I guess for most tasks it wouldn't matter. But if you look at like the toxic language stuff, for example, you yeah, know how it yeah, does. Yeah, that's the um, thing. Like uh, in, the, in the paper they compare it... I, it's not uh, so. Like I think that GPT three is like the family of models, and when you use their API for doing inference, they have like specific names for like. I think that the, the Da Vinci is, is the, the one seventy five. Yeah. yeah, the one seventy five billion. So they compare it to that, um, and like you said, uh, that, that's a black box, right? Um, yeah. So. I mean, maybe we, so they have like this, it's called real toxicity prompts, which mm-hmm. is something like you start with a prompt that could go badly and then see if your model completes it in a, a toxic way. Yeah. Um, this model has been trained in Reddit. I think it could do that if yeah. it needs to. <laughs> um, and and it, it is a bit worse than Palm and then the GPT-3. This is, I think, more clear than some of the other. Like they also have zero shot and few shot comparisons where it, it seems fairly close um, to GPT-3. Uh, in, in this plot, it seems like GPT-3 is consistently better. Um, but as you were saying, and we were talking about earlier, I don't know what's happening at the API. It's probably yeah. in their interest to reduce some of this, you yeah, know, the, I mean, the worst I mean, output as much as possible. This is like speculation, but like I would, I would kind of uh, speculate that uh, they probably do some post filtering or some mechanism either in the data uh, kind of training site or at the post filtering site to prevent this. Yeah, no, that, that's a good point. Also, we don't know what data GPT-3 used, right? Maybe they tried to aggressively remove you know, posts that wouldn't be good to train on. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe yeah. they tried to do it all in post filtering. Yeah, you know, we, yeah, we don't yeah. know at all. Um, but here they explicitly say that they don't try to do it though, right? They talk about um, downstream applications might need some sort of mitigation for preventing outputs like yeah. this, but that's not their goal right now. They don't try to add that. And interestingly, um, I uh, I believe that if you want to download yourself the, the bigger train, pre-trained model, you have to sign some sort of um, uh, like ethical kind of self, uh, as in like, it's my own responsibility what I do with this and I will not use it for, for nasty stuff because it like, they basically are, don't provide any guarantee about how this model behaves and like yeah. um, you certainly should not directly apply to some commercial product out there without really thinking carefully about <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what it will output because yeah, um, it's, it's 
hard to anticipate what yeah, it will generate. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. Um, okay. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, they have, you know, like the, their, their usual, uh, you know, benchmarks, like you said, they pretty much establish that they replicate GPT-3 pretty successfully. Um, I would like to end this by having like a short discussion or reflecting on, I don't know, this whole replicability of large language models to what degree it's relevant, how you see as a researcher kind of, how excited are you about these things being open source? Is it really going to make a difference? Not really because you're not even going to use this anyway or I don't know, what what, what is your sense in all of this? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the... I'm sure to start with, it makes a difference for someone, right? There, I'm sure this is now more accessible to people than GPT-3 was because you can take the weights and load it somewhere. But I think it's still not trivial to use them. Um, I haven't tried. You know, maybe I'll try with some simple <laughs> example at some point. But it seems like the weights would be a few hundred gigabytes in that range. So. You, you know, this yeah. isn't going to load into memory on someone's laptop. Um, right? <laughs> it, sure. it, it takes, you know, a, a real serious machine. Yeah. Um, but I mean, in terms of replication, I thought it was really interesting. I guess what it says is that what's in the GPT-3 paper is more or less enough to replicate GPT-3, right? There's these decisions like what data they used, exactly who was tuning what in what way as things were running. Mm-hmm. They probably matter to some degree, but it, it is more or less, you know, very similar performance. Mm-hmm. Um, ignoring the toxicity one where there's this, it, it seems like there's a, a gap. Um, looking at the standard NLP task stuff, maybe GPT is slightly better, but it's not, you know, a, a huge difference. Um, yeah. it, it seems, you know, like a very reasonable result. Like, so like 71 versus 69% accuracy, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. um, this is almost like a, it's almost a philosophical question, but like, what does it mean for a paper to be? replicable or like how do you think about uh, yeah like what what makes a paper replicable like what are good practices what do you think especially when you start going into these regimes where like um it's like big teams of people like using big compute yeah um like would you say gpt3 is replicable for instance yeah i would say this is has replicated it in in some way um Looking at the paper only, would I say it's replicable? I, I think I would say I don't know because there's clearly not full detail here, right? There, there's there, a thing. There, I mean, it, there's it, some it, things it missing. It took a, a team of very skilled engineers and researchers to pull these up, right? Yeah. Uh, so, and and some of that is probably even just scaling it to train, right? They have almost a thousand GPUs and it's model parallel. Right? Things are typically data parallel, which is much easier to set up, but isn't yeah, mm-hmm. it's not going to do the job here. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. I guess it highlights that you know these issues weren't a huge problem for replicability, but it's very specific to this case, right? Somewhere else you could have data that does matter a lot, and and so it's hard to say much until you try it. Um, The question of exactly what's being replicated, I think, is also interesting. So, I mean, the the numbers are not the same, right? So, seventy one versus sixty nine percent accuracy, looking at two points on one of the plots, for example. Um, but it's close enough. Like the, the core finding of these models work really well in a zero-shot setting. They perform better in a zero-shot setting as model size increases and so on. I, w- I would say that finding has been replicated um, mm-hmm. because oftentimes people think about replication as did I match this metric specifically? Right? Is my NDCG still point four two three seven five or you know whatever? Mm-hmm. Um, so like the replicability of findings, I think was 
the right way to go about it. And I, I think yeah, it's a, a nice Yeah, I guess that's approach. a very good point, right? Because I think that a lot of uh, people in, in who are more computer science oriented, myself included, would think of replicability as sort of kind of running the same, like being able to run the same thing or like being able to get that same number, not so much as replicating the finding, so to speak, which is more of a, probably what a lot of other type of research like in, in like... Um, like empirical, I don't know how you say, like yeah. studies, like medical studies, for instance, right? right. Like, replication is about validating whatever uh, hypothesis. Yeah, or any, any social science. Yeah, I mean, if you're a psychologist, you can't rerun the same setting twice and ever hope to get the same number, right? We're in a very specific field where we have some hope of repeating something exactly. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, to me, the replicability is what did I learn and did does this still hold, right? So something about learning, what do they say? Um, large language models are good zero-shot learners, something like that with the original GPT-3. Yeah. Right, Th- this still holds, you still see the trend, mm-hmm. exact numbers yeah, may so move very yeah. slightly. But. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's a very, very good point. Yeah. Um, besides that, uh, we were also highlighting a little bit before, before we started recording, um, what are interesting directions... Um, uh, where l- large language models are used in information retrieval or for other tasks, um, and how these kind of efforts uh, help in that in that way. Yeah, so I can think of two not immediate but possible applications. Maybe um, one is just augmenting training data, right? Maybe there's a good way to use this to generate better labels or to generate some intermediate information that's useful, I don't know. But you can generate data using a model like this much better than a smaller model. So maybe this is then useful for training something more manageable. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is I wonder about creating embeddings from it. So it seems like OpenAI explored this a little bit with GPT-3. Um, my sense from reading like Niels Reimer's blog post, for example, yeah. is the embeddings weren't working Super well. Yeah. So um, basically, for context, like the it was I think two months or three months ago, right? That uh, they released their embeddings API, which is basically the, you can get um, the raw embeddings from GPT-like uh, models yeah. and use them for like retrieval or like whatever you you want to. Um, yeah, you can you can get the raw embeddings, and then now this is some you know you, you don't have to run the model again. You insert text as input. You've got the raw embedding, so maybe you can store those embeddings and do something useful. Yes, I guess in the case of this blog post, it didn't seem like those embeddings were working so usefully. Yeah, but in, in principle, right? If you had a large language model that could generate them, mm-hmm. now you don't need to keep rerunning it. Um, yeah, I, I'm going to link that uh, blog post from from Niels Framers because I think that was very um, interesting, and I think that that uh, announcement from OpenAI got a bit of a backs backslash. How I see it a little bit is um, my sense is that the the auto regressive uh, sort of language modeling, which is all the GPT series is based on, does not produce embeddings that are as kind of high quality in a kind of like general like that kind of generalized for any purpose. As as well as other like bird like um, yeah. span correction uh, approaches, um, so it does seem like the the more you scale it, the better it gets. But it, like I guess that the blog post uh, from from Nils kind of highlighted that um, uh, task specific or like uh, more yeah like other types of pre training produce much better quality uh, general purpose embeddings rather yeah. than GPT, and that they were kind of a bit. Selling it, overselling it, uh, a little bit uh, in in their 
sort of. Yeah, I mean, in, in that blog post, according to that evaluation, I think you were better off using a BERT style type embedding rather than the GPT three ones. Yeah. Um, Definitely check that out if you're um, interesting. I will link that. Yeah. Um, but it, I mean, it's a hard problem, right? Creating general purpose embeddings is not easy. People often are fine tuning the smaller models. You can't fine tune this, I guess. So yeah, in that blog I mean, post, it wasn't fine tuned. Yeah, but. yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of like um, almost ill defined. What is general purpose embeddings? What kind of yeah? What, what are like? What is the the kind of the set of all tasks of NLP tasks that you want to solve? Uh, that's I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you can't have a general purpose cosine similarity between embeddings, for example. Like you very soon have a conflict. Antonym and synonym. Now it's right. So at, at the very least, you need some projection of the embeddings in some other space or. Mm-hmm. Other things have to happen. They can't be totally general purpose with something like cosine similarity. Yeah, yeah. No, but this, yeah, no. I, I, like, what I, it's, it, I think it's a very interesting space. It's definitely not converged, but um, I do see a trend in this oh, whole space of like machine learning as a service and sort of um, abstracting away. Like, uh, a lot of these transformer models have developed into like um, models that produce. Embeddings that are good for a lot of tasks. So a lot of companies are sort of abstracting that away for you and exposing that via an API and charging you for that. And so um, I think it's a space that uh, will definitely grow in the next year or so. Um, And I mean, if someone wants to grab this OPT thing and host it somewhere and just charge kind of the cost of how much it costs to... Um, host that I think that would be great. I'm I'm not aware of anyone who has done that yet, and it's pretty expensive. No, I'm not either. I, we need some open AI competitors. To yeah. Decide <laughs> um, yeah, but but uh, but I I'm, I was I think I learned a lot from from looking through the you know this paper and and you know like and on how all of this works because you know. Yeah, I know it was really interesting to see like the the low level details of how hard this is to train, what people have to do on a daily basis, what yeah. they think about it. Yeah, and, and to me, it's yeah. also very interesting how little of that actually translates in the end paper, right? Like the end paper is such a kind of filtered, uh, post processed uh, story about what happened or like what the findings are, right? Um, yeah, I mean, you can't say, well, we tried this thing, and then we thought maybe we should try that other thing, and then we tried another thing right, in the paper. This is, doesn't yeah. look scientific. <laughs> yeah. Someone asked for an ablation. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. Um, uh, all right, is there any other thing you would like to highlight from, um, from this before we close it off? No, I think it's uh, an interesting paper. I'm quite curious to see how people use it. Maybe it will enable new research yeah. um, rather than you know using the GPT-3 APIs. I'm, I'm very yeah. serious to see it. Sure. Curious if this becomes more common. I mean, so. we're also looking uh, closely at, at the um, Big Science Workshop that Hugging Phase is spearheading, which they're also basically training a, a model similar to these uh, in an open source way and documenting their findings. And they already have published some, some work on, on the preliminary findings on that. They haven't f- uh, finished their full training run yet um, but I'm also really looking forward to what they find there and what people can learn from it and how they share it also how, what what kind of things they uh, yeah yeah. and this is a multilingual model which will be an interesting comparison yeah. point because this is English only 175B I think there's maybe slightly smaller but multilingual so it'll be interesting to see how it compares for different tasks absolutely um, absolutely and we will uh, probably talk about that in the future um, okay, so thank you for for listening or uh, viewing us, and uh, we'll see you in the in the next one. See you.